Before we start today's show, I want to give you a heads up about something new from The Washington Post. If you've listened to the Post History podcast, Presidential or Moonrise, you know Lillian Cunningham is a great guide to our country's complicated past. Now, she has a new podcast, guiding you through America's national parks, their iconic landscapes, and messy history, and uncertain future. It's the perfect companion for your summer road trip. The trailer is out now. You can subscribe to Field Trip wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll put a link in our show notes. Okay, now on to today's show. We have all been breathlessly watching a federal indictment play out this week. Even if it wasn't part of my job, I probably would have been following the whole courthouse drama unfold, watching as former President Donald Trump went to a Florida courthouse for an arraignment. It's something we do when there's a case of national interest. But for a growing number of people, they've started doing it voluntarily for cases that often never make it into the national spotlight. So maybe we should just start running through the cases. So what you're hearing is from a recent meeting where volunteers debriefed after paying close attention to a bail hearing. And it's just one example of a movement happening across America. It's called court watching. Every person we saw in in court today was either black or Hispanic. There wasn't a single white person in there. And that is so typical. It's not a flag, but I really, really always am upset when there's a very large unsecured bond. Reporter Katie Mettler says the people who court watch are there to hold the justice system accountable. And when they keep an eye on bail hearings, they've actually made a difference in the courts. Because I literally watched it, like, where the court watchers with Howard University Law School first flagged in late 2020 that people were being ordered, released by judges, but weren't actually getting out of jail. And no one could really understand why. Court Watch was some of the, were some of the earliest people to flag that problem. Fast forward two years, and it is now the subject of a substantive federal lawsuit against the judges in Prince George's County and the Department of Corrections in Prince George's County, alleging that people's constitutional rights have been violated. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Rhonda Colvin, your guest host. It's Thursday, June 15th. Today, court watching. Everybody's doing it. Even celebrities like Grammy-winning artist Fiona Apple. But the ability to keep this close eye on the courts is also in danger. My colleague Kim Bellware talked with Katie about the struggle to keep remote access available to volunteers. Kim and Katie will take it from here. So, Katie, what does a typical day for a court watcher look like? So the way it works is that in the morning, they get the docket for the day. That shows all of the people who are going to have a bond hearing. There's a point person who assigns out the court watchers for that day. Sometimes it's five people. Sometimes it's ten people. Depends on availability. Then they're taking notes about what the judge says, what the attorneys say, what the loved one or defendant says, if they say anything at all. Then all of those court watchers who are volunteering on that day get together in a Zoom call afterwards for a debrief where they walk through, like, 
oh, I, I heard this in my notes. Did someone hear something different? Or I, the, my audio cut out here. Did anybody catch this? You know, they're just sort of trading notes. And then they come up with a plan towards the end of the meeting, which is like, what do we want to flag to the accountability committee? And the accountability committee is responsible for sending letters once a week, once every couple of weeks, to various officials, lawmakers, people with power who can make changes um, related to the issues that the court watchers are hearing about in court. This sounds like a tremendous amount of effort for hearings that sometimes last, you know, five minutes or less. What is the deal? What is so important about bail hearings? Why are they the focus? If you talk to anybody who's interacted with, you know, what they say, the system, the the criminal justice system, some say the criminal legal system, there's lots of junctures along the way that can really impact the course of someone's life and the course of their legal case. Of course, it starts with an arrest, right? But the first touch point for most people with the court system is what happens in that bond hearing. And I have heard court watchers say it can quite literally be a matter of life or death. And, you know, they say that sounds dramatic, and and I know it sounds dramatic. But what they mean by that is the decision of whether you're going to be detained before your trial or not, whether you're going to be in jail before your trial or not can have a cascading impact on your life and the life of your loved ones. So the bond hearing is a real fork in the road. It's a real fork in the road, exactly. It can, you know, determine whether you keep your job or not. And if you lose your job, then you can't pay your bills. So that could mean you lose your home. It could mean that by the time you have your trial, which you may or may not be found guilty of what you've been accused of, You could leave jail and be without a car, without a home, without a job, you know, can have huge economic impacts on someone's life. And that's for someone who is only worried about themselves or only has themselves to take care of. A lot of people are parents, they're mothers, they're fathers, they're providing for kids, they're providing for aging parents. There's this outside impact beyond your own personal circumstances that can have a real a real ripple effect. How long has court watching been in practice? So the concept of court watching has existed a couple decades. As far as I can tell, my research tells me that the first sort of organized court watch organization started in New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina. The courts there got thrown completely into disarray because of all the flooding and the damage and the system had to rebuild And part of that official effort to rebuild the courts came with a parallel effort from community members who said, we have to keep an eye on this while this rebuild is happening because it's chaotic and the system as it has always operated is off track right now. Um, And so that was around 2007 that Court Watch NOLA began. And then out of that, there have been about 30 other Court Watch organizations pop up across the country. So in Prince George's County, Court Watch PG started in the fall of 2019 when a community organizer here named Kiana Johnson founded the program. It's a spinoff of her organization Life After Release, which helps people as they get out of prison. Court Watch really took off when Kiana recruited Carmen Johnson, who's also formerly incarcerated, to begin court watching in the winter of 2020, just before the pandemic hit. Carmen has now gone on to become the director of Court Watch PG. We look for the fact that 
loved ones deserve an opportunity to be released and that they deserve the, the right to be considered innocent until proven guilty. And a lot of times in these bond hearings, especially in the past, that has not been the case. And, um, and it's really, really unfortunate. And how has the process changed since then? I imagine the pandemic has really moved it in a different direction. In Prince George's County and for the courts in Maryland, the pandemic totally changed the game for how their structure of Court Watch operates. In the early months of 2020, before the pandemic hit, Carmen was sitting alone in person every day at the courthouse in Upper Marlboro in Prince George's County and taking paper notes on a notepad about each bond hearing that she was listening to all by herself. There wasn't a process in place for what to do with those notes. There was no database. There were no committees. It was mostly just Carmen all by herself sitting in court. And for Carmen, being there was pretty difficult because it was really the first time she had been in court since her own case and conviction years before. I was terrified because I suffer from PTSD and I hadn't been in a courtroom since the day that they found me guilty and arrested me immediately. And um, so I was nervous. I was panicking. I was looking at the bailiff and then the, the, the all rise had come the judge and I was sweating and my palms was wet and, and I was trying to just concentrate and trying to just think and and I, I was having anxieties, but I had to, and I, I have a quote unquote, I mean, I had to thug my way through the mental health anguish that I was feeling that day and the next few weeks because what happened to me cannot happen to any other person. When the pandemic hit, the court watchers got access to the Zoom link where bond hearings were happening. And Carmen will say it was, it completely changed the game for her because suddenly she didn't have to be in person by herself taking written notes, trying to pay attention to what was happening, but that she was sitting in her home with her computer, with her notepads, able to look stuff up on her computer as the cases were coming up, access to that, you know, Maryland case search database, to Google if you're searching for different things. And it allowed not just for it to be easier for her, but for more and more people to be able to volunteer because the barriers to court fell away. Beforehand, you could only be a court watcher if you had a chunk of two to three hours available in the middle of your day during the weekday, which largely excluded working people. If you had transportation to the courthouse itself to get you there. If you didn't have to worry about childcare or other, other things to free up your time. And you lived here. You had to live here and have access to the courthouse. With the pandemic and the access to Zoom, it allowed people all over the region to be able to participate in court watching and all over the country. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that. Now that the pandemic has pushed court proceedings online in Maryland, is it going to stay that way? That's the big question right now that the court watchers are working really hard to answer. They're deeply concerned that as the world transitions back to the systems that were in place before the pandemic began, that it could erode some of the access that they have gotten to court hearings in Maryland. And in doing that, limit the power and reach of their organization to do the work that they've been doing for 
years now. After the break, the pushback to court watching. We'll be right back. Are there critics of court watching? I'm thinking specifically where maintaining virtual access is concerned. Is there anybody pushing back against that aspect of it? So the main pushback in Maryland has been from the judiciary itself, from the judges, and from some prosecutors who have vocalized concern For years now, this was even pre-pandemic when there were broader conversations about whether you can have virtual witness testimony or sort of virtual elements of court, including live streaming. In some states, there's live streaming of court and that sort of thing. So when all of these conversations would come up, there was often pushback from the judiciary, from the judges, and from some prosecutors saying that they have concerns about witness intimidation, about the privacy of victims, sexual assault victims, um, sexual assault survivors, and that there needs to be safeguards in place to protect people. What does Court Watch say to those concerns? Yeah, so Court Watchers, and not just Court Watchers, but defense attorneys and other people who advocate for transparency, have pushed back on that to say that the, the protections that are currently in place under the law that judges have access to, that prosecutors have access to, that defense attorneys have access to, to protect people, vulnerable people, who are moving through the criminal legal system, those same protections would apply with virtual access as well. So, for example, if there is testimony in a murder trial in which there is concern that the, the, the victim's testimony might put them in danger, Lawyers could make a motion to seal that testimony or to seal that hearing to protect that person's privacy. Yeah, what are the challenges that court watching in general face? And what about the push like we've seen in Maryland for ongoing virtual access? So more broadly on the national level, and I think this is in part why organizers wanted to launch this national court watch network is that, first of all, a lot of people don't even know what court watching is. It's been around for a couple decades. It's still a fairly new concept. And what organizers say, what people who really advocate for court watching say, is that if you care about criminal justice reform, if you care about police accountability, court watching could be the next frontier of that work. It could be the next step in the process. And so from a public relations standpoint, I think organizers are working really hard to just inform people that this is possible at all, that they could create their own court watch organization in their own backyard, um, or that they could they could join an organization that already exists. In Prince George's County, because it's one of the few places nationwide where virtual access to the courts has remained in place even as some of the other pandemic structures have fallen away. And so that has allowed Court Watch PG to have the largest virtual court watching operation in the country and and as a result has 
empowered Court Watch PG to have one of the largest volunteer bases in the country because more people have access. It is more flexible. And that looks like, you know, high schoolers who have their flex period being able to Zoom in one day a week to participate in Court Watch. It looks like someone who maybe is retired and has mobility challenges being able to log on from their computer in Northern Virginia to watch bail review hearings in Prince George's County in Maryland. And it looks like Fiona Apple, the Grammy Award-winning musician, to be able to zoom in all the way from California to Court Watch in Prince George's County because she can do it on her computer at home. Why did she join? So Fiona first got involved. It's it's kind of funny because she's actually never been to Prince George's County, um, but is probably one of the most dedicated court watchers uh, for Court Watch PG. The first day that I court watched is still remains to be the longest day I've ever court watched. There was like 60 loved ones or something. It was like, it was, it was really long, um, but I was riveted the whole time. She got involved because she was asked to be part of this campaign called Gasping for Justice that organized a bunch of celebrities and musicians and actors to read aloud the sworn testimonies of people inside the jail who were describing the conditions they were facing in the early months of the pandemic. As part of that campaign, one of the calls to action was to join Court Watch PG. And actually, after that campaign ran, they got a huge influx of volunteers to sign up to Court Watch. I got an email inviting me to the orientation. And the first time I got the email, I thought, well, that makes a lot of sense. Just sort of like, I didn't really understand what it involved, but it made sense to me that like people in their most vulnerable time on their worst day, at the very least, be there with them, you know, witness it. Don't let them be going through that alone. See what's going on. It just made sense to me. And she said to herself, I wanna, I wanna do something with my time right now. I'm going to sign up to do this. And, you know, Fiona's a pretty private person. uh, And I think why her fans love her is because she doesn't just talk the talk, but she walks the walk. She does the work behind the scenes that isn't flashy. She's really there on the front lines. And so she didn't tell anybody she was going to sign up to Court Watch. And I went over and I, and I Googled her. I said, no, that can't be her. So I Googled her and I was like, oh, my God. And I started screaming in my hand like a little 15-year-old. A 15-year-old. I'm like, at that time, what was that, like 54 or something, or something years old? I'm screaming in my hand, and I can't fix my clothes and came back and sat down, and I said, hello, Miss Apple. And then she said, hello, Dr. Johnson. And we both just smiled at each other. Fiona was hoping, praying that no one was going to recognize her because she just wanted to be another person showing up to do the work. So she goes, Fiona Apple. <laughs> and I was like, okay. That's that's done now. <laughs> but, I mean, that was, like, the only—there hasn't been any kind of um, weirdness about, you know, me being a musician or anything. I kind of don't think that most of the people that I work with kind of even knew who I was, which is, you know, makes it <laughs> simple. And that's how, that's how she got started, and she's been a regular court watcher ever since. It's been two years now. But I'm curious, Katie, what other people involved in court watch— have said about what it's like to be a court watcher and, and what that experience has meant for them. 
I have been writing about Court Watch from the very beginning when it was largely just Carmen and a sort of small band of people who were working really hard to to pull this off every day. And I have seen it grow over the last couple years to hundreds of volunteers who span all walks of life, all life experiences, and are using those experiences to inform the work that they're doing and as a way to feel like they are giving back to their community. I hear often from community organizers who have said that police accountability is really important and it has come at the forefront of so many of our conversations about criminal justice reform in recent years, but that the kind of street-level accountability of officers is only as effective as it can be if that continues in the courtroom as well, and that there are far fewer eyes on what happens in court than there are on perhaps what happens between police and citizens out in the world. Katie, thank you so much for your reporting on this. Thank you for having me. Katie Mettler covers policing, courts, and justice for The Post. She spoke with Kim Bellware. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. And don't forget to subscribe to Field Trip. You can hear the trailer and get ready for the show, which comes out on June 28th. I'm Rhonda Colvin. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.